can do whatever you want to do and set your mind to why the hell would anyone ever order takeaway online you just use the phone we've got menus in our drawer that's a stupid idea literally that was my dad <laughs> but why the hell would you not do it Hello, I'm Dan Murray. I'm your host. And I'm Rich Martel, your producer. Welcome to Secret Leaders, the podcast all about awesome company builders, innovators and challengers who share the real behind the scenes stories about what it's like to create some of the biggest and most dynamic brands in the world. So hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 1. Before we crack on with today's guest, we just have a few short announcements we're rather proud of. We just want to share with you quickly. First and foremost, we're delighted to be upskilling and upscaling for our second series. After receiving over 70,000 subscribers on a £250 spend on Series 1, we've taken Series 2 into a studio built at the amazing Runway East, one of London's leading co-working operators dedicated to helping startups grow. So if you're looking for a hot desk office or indeed a studio like us, check them out. We've not only tried to deliver on sound quality, but on guests. This series, you'll hear from the founders of the giant food chain, Café Rouge, the ultimate health innovator, Babylon Health, one of the most famous apps of all time with over 1 billion downloads in the form of Shazam, and many more household names who take you through their journey from startup to scale-up and the challenges along the way. As always, delivered in an honest, open and authentic manner. Finally, a big thank you to our three sponsors, La Fosse, Calm.com and Contour Space, who helped us deliver this series. On the subject of delivery, it's time for today's guest. So to get cracking, welcome back. And we hope you enjoy what we've got in store for you, because for the last 11 years, our guest has done nothing but think about takeaway. Sounds like a dream, right? Well, welcome to the wonderful and often tasty world of David Buttress, the co-founder and former CEO of food delivery giant Just Eat, who to this day remains part of the board. Now, described as one of the UK's standout entrepreneurs of the last decade, David got a taste for delivery-based businesses when he cultivated his own newspaper delivering service at the age of 11. However, unlike the paper round he built as a youngster, which was limited by how many houses one boy could deliver to, Just Eat exploded and David listed the company on the London Stock Exchange in 2014 with its current value just over £5 billion. He's recently left his full-time role and turned to the dark side, working with venture capital firm 83 North, investing into startups trying to discover the next big thing. So enough from us and more onto the man himself. David, to break the ice, are you ready for a quick fire round? I'm ready for quick fire. Wonderful. Deliveroo or Uber Eats? Oh, I go Deliveroo. Do you actually use Deliveroo? I use all, actually. I use Uber Eats, Deliveroo. Just Eat, I used Hungry House. God, your marketing team would be so disgusted by your (laughs) lack of brand loyalty. It's it's important to uh, try your competitors, right? Yeah, very fair. Um, UK or US? Oh, that's a good question. Or Canary Islands, where you've just come back looking really (laughs) brown from. Yeah, that's a good one. I would have to go US, actually. Okay. Um, We can come on to that a little later. Now, I have immediately noticed the accent. So, Cardiff or London? Cardiff. Okay, good lad. I guess that's uh, rugby all the way then. Simple, yeah. Okay. YouTube or Twitter? Yeah, Twitter. Do you use Twitter a lot? A lot. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Google or Facebook? Uh, Google. Interesting. You're trapped on a desert island and you can bring three things. Not your wife, not your kids, not your tan. I wouldn't take them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, a rugby ball? Yeah, I'd take a rugby ball. So three things, yeah? Yes. Okay, so I'd go rugby ball. I would go, uh, I think I'd go Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. I like that book. Um... 
And the probably third thing I would go for uh, would be some kind of sporting almanac to keep me... Uh, I love all sort of data around sports, so I'd have a good read of that. Okay, fair enough. So the biggest book on sports we can possibly find you. <laughs> yeah. Ashes Ashes isn't even that long, though. You're going to get yeah, through it. Yeah, but I enjoy it, Ryan. I quite enjoy Frank McCourt's. Yeah, um, fair enough. And if you're, on a, if you're on a desert island, you're not going to get off, so you might as well read something until someone rescues you, otherwise you're going to die anyway. So That's very fair. But how many times are you going to be able to read that over and over again? <laughs> I thought you were going to choose something like, you know, Lord of the Flies or something, you know. Something... Yeah, no, something less profound, actually. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Um, what are the apps you use most right now on um, your phone? What do you actually use? Yeah, so I'm probably using the top three. Uh, are Twitter, um, I use a lot. Um, I use, I'm still using the food apps, so Just Eat, obviously. I would be up there with the other food apps because um, I guess like lots of people cooking less. And that's just a fact. Um, and then the third thing I'd be using... Um, would be probably uh, Trainline because I'm travelling a lot around the country at the minute, so I've started using that. It's a pretty good app, actually. Yeah, it's a very good app. So um, on that note, you book your own travel. Yeah, you haven't got out of the habit of uh, now having a PA to book travel. No, I haven't got a fleet of people looking after me. Okay. I think I've got a. Uh, I stay pretty grounded. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> um, Chinese or Indian food? It's obviously a very important easy, question. That people easy, easy. Indian, Indian, isn't it? Indian absolutely. Most inspirational person in the world to you? Ah, that's a great question. That's a great question. I, I think actually um, I would have to go with I would have to go with someone who I know, um, which would be my granddad actually. Okay. Yeah. So I'll go with him. He worked till he was ninety three and was a very hard working guy. He started work when he was twelve. Um, kind of brought me and my brothers up from the age of about 11, 12. So he was an important figure. So I would have to go with him. Great. That's a great answer. Um, is there an entrepreneur that you look up to? Yeah, there's a few. I think probably. When I first started getting interested in business, I really liked, obviously not live now, but I liked Henry Ford and how he sort of invented, obviously, and how he step changed technology on transportation, how he thought about building an operation and how he thought about the world he operated in. He's a really interesting guy. I read his, um, I read a biography about him. He was a really interesting guy. Um, so I really liked him. I guess from the technology world, more recent times, I guess all the usual names really, but I guess the one I sort of um, thought was probably the most brilliant what they did was the google guys i think the two google guys probably the two if i look at and think wow that was incredible how they um, what they scaled and how they did it so mm. over jobs or anyone like that um right so person that you least like on the planet is there someone that fits that bill wow least like yeah okay least like but greatly respect how about this one so um probably uh, the england rugby coach uh, the aussie guy <laughs> interesting eric uh jones yeah eddie jones, eddie jones eddie yeah, jones. yeah. Oh, really? so at least like him because he's actually bloody good mm. as a rugby coach mm. and as a welsh rugby fan that's not good yeah um but i definitely respect him i um i got invited to this dinner thing and, and eddie jones was there mm. and when they did the they sort of lay out all the tables. He happened to be on my table, and I thought, oh, no, bloody Eddie Jones. I can't sit next to Eddie Jones for three hours, you know, and be listening to... Because England just won the Grand Slam as well. I was like, oh, I can't. This is just my night of hell. Um, and it just goes to show what a great guy he is because I couldn't help but really, really like him. And the more I liked him, the more I respected him, the more I was getting frustrated about it because he's a brilliant guy. Mm. And I'm not surprised if you saw him speak. He, the way he talks and how he engages with people, he's very real. And I noticed he did little things that just, I think, are always impressive. Like, for example, there was a couple of the professional rugby players from Wales and Scotland on neighbouring tables. And he went and shook hands with the captains of all the different teams. No other coach did that. The Welsh coach was there. There was some other, I think there's um, maybe the Irish coach. There were some other coaches there. 
but only Eddie Jones did that before he left. He made a point of going up to them, mm-hmm. just shows respect, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're captain of international countries, and he, he showed them some respect. And you could see the players, they just liked him, and they warmed to him, and he has that quality about him. And I think he's dead right about culture on the wall, because one of the things we said at Just Eat was, if we ever put posters on the wall about our culture, we will know that's the day this company has completely lost the plot around culture. Because actually the culture of any company is quite simple. It's how they, Look at how the leadership behaves. That's the culture. Everything else is just bullshit in my mind. So that's... That's at least how we thought about it. So it's amazing, actually, the fact that he did that with Australia because he was the coach of Australia when we in England won the. Uh, I say we, sorry. Yeah, yeah. When, when England won the. And then and then with Japan, you know, the, you know that that match uh, in the in the World Cup over here, where they where they um, they beat South Africa. Yeah, he's yeah, got a great track record. Yeah. Okay, so he's a teacher, right? I think he was a teacher. Was he a teacher before? I think wow. he was a teacher before. That's how I got into coaching, because he was I doing rugby coaching. I think he was a teacher, which That's says amazing, something about being a good it? coach, right? Uh, Rich is going to Google I this can't Google whilst it, we crack we're on. In a, in a you coach. Coach. Oh, yeah, it's true. Even the internet doesn't work whilst this happens. Okay. I mean, if anyone's going to call for you, you're completely screwed. Uh, you're just going to have to trust us. Yeah. Um, I was actually, on the weekend, I was with someone whose uh, job is to help people craft stories. And she was explaining to me that the best place to start a story sometimes is right bam, smack in the middle. So... Let's drop listeners right into it. What stands out as the most manic day from your time at Just E and why? What happened? Take us through an audio tree of intensity to, you know, wake our readers up, our listeners. Hopefully you're not reading the transcripts of this podcast, otherwise you're wasting your time. But I'm, t- I'm, taking, a, I'm taking a deep breath thinking about it. I've probably got three or four I could recount, but probably one of the biggest ones for me was uh, Valentine's Day 2011 because um, our entire back-end systems went down. So we lost everything. So in other words, you know, when you've got, we had at the time probably 11,000, 12,000 restaurants in the UK alone, and we just couldn't communicate with them. And at the time, we were probably processing around 100,000 or plus orders a day. So maybe 200,000 consumer orders in the UK a day at the time. And we lost all means of automatic communication with our restaurants, which is not good when you have um, when you have a system that's dependent on real-time communication, etc. I won't bore you with that. So um, we, um, it was horrendous. So we, we all just, jumped on a massive group Skype call um, tried to figure out literally while the engines the plane was in flight and the engines were failing or failed in effect um, literally trying to fix it as we were flying um, we could see the orders piling up backlogging up it was just the most horrendous feeling so we, I think we worked for th- I think that was 60 hours anyway we worked for like I was entire it was two and two it felt like weeks but it probably two two and a half days solid to rebuild uh, get it stable get it back up uh, I had to replace boxes in restaurants. I, I won't even bore you. We had like a fleet of my mum going out. There was literally just like everyone that you knew that you remotely trusted. So you, you were taking orders, but you weren't able to get those through to the restaurant. Yeah, so we were phoning them through, which is not a good idea, right? When you have an automated, very scalable, very scalable <laughs> business model. So and time sensitive, I guess. And huge, yeah. got 45 minutes before people yeah. start twitching at the curtains and getting agitated. So yeah, that was probably a pretty intense, more than 24. That was probably 48, 60 hours. And then IPO in the company was just a surreal experience because you're sort of doing, I guess, 15, 16 hour days and then back to back US, London. And then, you know, then you have the meeting in the evening around allocation of your shares and then your IPO in at eight o'clock in the morning. It's just like a it's like a stag do without alcohol, I would describe it as. Um, but was there some alcohol afterwards? There was probably alcohol during, 
but not that much because um, mostly with bankers mm. um, and um, as in they probably wanted to lay it on but you didn't yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe and then and then on the day of the IPO yeah we did the thing at the uh, London Stock Exchange at 8 in the morning and then and then we did actually after about 11 o'clock we did uh, go and have a few drinks actually yeah we did um, so yeah that was that was a good day If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. You know, one one more thing before we go back to the start. Just wanted to know, you, you know, you mentioned Eddie Jones as, um, and obviously pointed out, you know, something he said around culture. But, um, you know, what is something incredibly motivational that's been said to you in the past that, you know, really stuck with you? Is it maybe some advice from your grandpa? Is it another leader? Is it a colleague? Yeah, actually, yeah. So there is one, actually. And I, and I, and I say it to my kids now. So um, it's a very simple phrase, but it's a little bit like Henry Ford has, has used something similar on this. But basically, you can do whatever you want to do and set your mind to. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you actually really think about the words and think how empowering they are and also how true they are if you really believe them then actually it's an incredibly useful phrase. And so I had that drummed into me from my early teens that, listen, you know, you're in a council estate, you know, a single parent family in South Wales in the 80s post miners' strike. It was grim. But I have someone say to you, you can do whatever you want to do with your life. It felt pretty powerful to me at the time. And, and it became a bit of an anchor in my mind. And certainly when I was, um, when we were starting Just Eat in the UK in 2005, 2006, I went to a dinner actually with my family. And it was interesting about, there were 10 people around the table. And 
And about three or four of them said, why the hell would anyone ever order takeaway online? You just use the phone. We've got menus in our drawer. That's a stupid idea. Literally, that was my dad. <laughs> Thanks, dad. Inspirational. Um, so um, so, so it, that wasn't the most motivational. Wasn't the most, but, but actually, interestingly, going back to that point about my grandfather, he was, he was always that one person who would say, and, you know, at the time, he was probably like, I don't know, late 70s or I don't know, whatever. No, probably in his 80s, early 80s. And he just said, listen, go for it. Why the hell would you not do it? You know, and that sort of going back to you can do whatever you want to do. Well, of course you can do it. Do it. You know, you're 28, 29, but go for it. And if I think people, you know, people use, have that perspective on the world, it's very liberating. And I, I see it with children now, even the education system, we're far too quick to discourage entrepreneurism. We're far too quick to discourage free thinking or for people to want to change something that seems at the time maybe inconceivable to change. And as a society, we do that a lot. Actually, we do it, I think, subconsciously, even in the education system. So the more we lift the lid off that stuff, the better we'll be. I mean, I totally agree about the education side, right? As in as someone who is just incredibly poor at things like maths and science, being made to do it all the time only ruins your confidence. Of course. It only just makes you feel like you're not good enough to, you know, you're not a fully formed human being as you can't do certain things. Whereas actually that's the case for everyone. Everyone yeah. can be good at everything thing um on that note again i guess you know you were surrounded by someone who was a multiplier so someone who was in your ear able to tell you that you can 10x yourself yep and it's a shame that people don't necessarily have that but hopefully everyone needs one i guess yeah we all need one as kids absolutely but that's the point of things like um like podcasts like youtube like anything really that can help people understand that actually the power's within them to make that change I guess with regards to you being anything you wanted to be, so it turns out you always wanted to do something around delivery. Yeah. Um, so yeah. take us through, you're just an incredibly good um, uh, a cyclist. Yeah, it's <laughs> so how it started on I, newspaper I think I'm, I think I'm bloody hard working, actually, which is a good ingredient to want to start any sort of, I guess, I guess business, but sort of delivery operational, I would say, operational business. You've kind of got to have a bit of a hard work in ethos uh, because they're tough right especially in the early years when they're subscale and they're quite gritty if you think about walking into takeaways at the time in the mid 2000s that wasn't the most sexy technology company to start up in fact for many years in fact vcs had a little bit of a look down their nose at just eat because they thought you know well you just del- grotty little takeaways you know they're not even michelin star restaurants in mayfair so um so you know that that was kind of uh, sort of sort of something we had to break so i guess i'm definitely someone who's got that hard work and ethos which i think all good entrepreneurs have in their dna because you kind of need to be willing to do um and work hard i think the other thing i would say about it i really loved i really loved the relationship side of we're talking to restaurant owners small business owners i guess you'd call them um you know i loved that bit of it that was great because there's some amazing entrepreneurs that run restaurants you know your local indian your local chinese trust me there's some really good business people and they're very shrewd really good operators so i quickly became to really enjoy their company and respect them so that was something that i i got back quite early so even though it was hard work and quite gritty crossing doors all that grim stuff if you like um the great stuff was the people beyond the doors were really interesting people that you know many of them actually are friends now I've, in fact I've, con- I've converted two iranians into welsh rugby supporters <laughs> who come to games with me <laughs> so farid or a couple of guys who own pizza gogo which is a london-based sort of pizza chain uh though i've managed to convert them just through a friendship that i've developed with them over the years it's amazing <laughs> one of the more meaningful uh exchanges yes. in your life yes exactly um yeah. i guess um just coming back to where we are right now which essentially is in a uh, basement in a bunker does this remind you a little bit of your first office at justy that was a basement wasn't it? i know this is probably yeah, gonna say a lot it nicer, was but... it was probably 
a little bit, I have to say, I don't want to show off, but probably a little bit bigger than this. Yeah. Doesn't seem my bunk was bigger well, than your bunker. Yeah, we, <laughs> are, we are in a, probably a three, three, three meter, meter by three square. meter room. I'm not saying mine was bigger than yours, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think in it was. Typical Welsh response to an English person. That is unbelievable. Um, okay, so take us back to the start. I mean, the story does start in a basement. So who was there? Who was there with you? And how did that first year pan out for you? Yeah, well, it was me and a brilliant guy, actually, the sort of brains of the outfit, if you like, a guy called Jesper Buch, who was a... Fant- Great name. Yeah, he's a Danish guy. He was a brilliant entrepreneur. He actually does a lot of... He does Dragon's Den in Denmark now, uh, on that, you know, huge uh, TV audience that he gets. And, but he does uh, he does Dragon's Den in Denmark, does a lot of investing. Dragon's Den. Yeah, Dan. Oh, that was good. That's getting ahead That's of good. I'm going to steal that and That's text harsh. him. That's harsh. I'm going to text him that. So, um, yeah, no, he does a lot of investing now and has done since probably 2012, 2013. And so it was me and him, and and he um, he was kind of doing the product um, and the um, sort of back end customer service stuff, and I was doing the sort of front of house, um, um, and then also doing all the restaurant side of the acquisition side of it there, as well as obviously all the digital um, uh, customer acquisition strategy. So, yeah, so it was I mean it was him and I, so we literally just did everything basically, um, whether it be open the bank account, put the desk together, um, and the first day was I can remember it well actually because. Um, it, I don't know why, but it, it was it was March the first, two thousand and six, and it was um, it was a very um, it was a very surreal day. I was really excited, actually. I was really buzzing about it. Um, turned up in a suit. <laughs> Who does that? How embarrassing is that. I mean, I, you're, the I first, it, you're the first one to turn up in a suit for the podcast. Really? So there you go. The Look at that. Does there, it you. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, I do it. There you go. So I did. Yeah, I sort of turned up in a suit. Um, um, and the first thing Jesper said was, "You can take the tie off." I was like, "Yeah, that's a bit embarrassing." I felt like I was going to my mum's wedding or something. So, um, so I did that, um, and then after that, we just got on with it. We just cracked into the work, and then very quickly it become it went from being really exciting to actually being really hard work. And then I think after about the first two or three days, it felt real. Oh my god, I'd left you know a job to do this. What this, job did you leave? I was at Coca Cola actually heading up the restaurant strategy for them in the UK and Ireland. And what was he doing? He was um he'd moved over from Denmark and prior to that he was a he was a barman in a, in a crazy daisy nightclub chain in Denmark and mm. that was his first angel investor so when he started mean? Just Eat. We met in Nando's in Hammersmith in the summer of two thousand and five um, because a colleague in Denmark said there's this crazy entrepreneur, he's coming to London, who was running the restaurant business for Coca-Cola in Denmark, and he said, would you mind giving him 30 minutes of your time because he's interested in the restaurant category in the UK, and if you could just meet him, I'd really appreciate it as a favour. And I always thought, you know, it was always good to, if you can to help people, you know. So, um, so yeah, I, I made 30 minutes, and ended up being 45 minutes, and bought him some chicken, Um and um, it went from there. We ended, I think we ended up going to a Cheapest pub. chicken you ever bought in the end? Cheapest chicken. Best chicken I ever bought, probably, yeah. 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 Um, um, and then we ended up going to a pub. And then all the best ideas obviously start from finishing pubs, right? So Very true. So I'm going home that night saying, I want to start this business called Just Eat. And his, his idea was it? Or did it just oh, it was, all, it was his idea. Yeah, so really? he, he, had, he had the idea. He was the driving, in the, the idea. I mean, Jesper was up in the Danish embassy in Oslo. He was working in the Danish embassy when he first got the idea. And he went to Google and just looked to order a pizza, I think, or something online. And he just couldn't find anything. So he, as he was telling me um, in Nando, he said, it's just nuts. I can't, I couldn't do it. He said, try and do the same now. And of course I couldn't. I was like, oh my God, that is nuts. You know, someone, and I remember saying to him, look, if we don't do this, somebody will. Somebody is definitely going to do this. Um, so why, why not it be us? Um, so that was it. And so how did you finance that first year? We bootstrapped. We, boot, we were a bit stupid, to be honest. We bootstrapped for too long. We, we, we bootstrapped for, so we bootstrapped for two years and a bit. 
And the reason why I say that is I still think to this day, Just Eat would be probably 12 months further along, maybe, you know, than we are now. Because we just, I guess, both of our backgrounds, Jesper came from a very humble background. So we were really, we were paranoid about money and running out of money and not having money and going bankrupt and all this sort of boring stuff. Did you have families at the time? Neither of us had families. Both of us had partners. That's right, yeah. So we sort of, so not really, but I think just, we just felt almost yeah, just worried about running out of money. So we um, we were sort of bootstrapping everything. So the first month we turned over £36. So we had 18 quid between the two of us, which we spent in all bar one in Canary Wharf. Because uh, what else do you do with 36 quid? Yeah. There's no point taking that home and saying, look what I've made this month. And in case you're wondering, David's not so old that £36 was different back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, exactly. And then the second month was 250 and then the third month it was 1000 The fourth month was 2000 And so we, we sort of followed this really naive model of when we got to the, maybe month six and it was like £8,000 of net revenue news for us we then started adding one person and we got really excited oh we've added one more person because we've made two thousand pounds extra this month so we can hire someone and we did that was quite it was kind of kind of noble and kind of you know quite kind of cute in a way but it's actually really naive because what we actually had was a proven business model that was scaling and what what we should have done of course is raise money and gone much quicker and accelerated faster anyway long story short is we ended up raising from index in in 2009 so it turned out okay but so you skipped out any angels full stop yeah, we bootstrapped. There was an angel, there was a Danish angel that Jesper brought in that he knew from his network in Denmark. But the first real, I would say, significant major sort of institutional funding round uh, was Index in our Series A. But yeah, there was an angel, but it was a sort of Danish contact of Jesper's. How um, how easy was the sell at the beginning to restaurants? Was, was it, was, it um, was the proposition different or was it exactly the same as it is now? And, and were people, um, you know, was it, was it, easy to get into places so the first day i actually got thrown out because i went out in that bloody suit and they thought i was the tax man so i went to speedo pizza on commercial road in docklands and the guy threw me out he said he didn't believe who i said i was he said you're not a salesman you're from the inland revenue and he threw me out now i don't know what that says, i don't yeah i don't know what that says about him rather than me but there we go yeah. so um so i did actually get thrown out the first in my first restaurant so I thought this is going to be tricky um but then the second day wore jeans and a polo shirt and strangely people did start talking to me a bit easier um slightly more mirrored i guess um but yeah no so it was tough you know it was i used to do i had a sales ratio which i managed to work out after about probably about 50 calls which was 12 6 and 1 so i do 12 visits to a restaurant do six presentations and one restaurant would sign so the thing i said to myself was i'm not going home until i've signed one and i knew to get there by about day 10 i knew that 12 visits six presentations would lead to one sale and then the subsequent restaurants would follow over the next 90 days so those six presentations another two to three of those restaurants would sign up in the subsequent 60 days after so i sort of sort of um I sort of bottomed that out quite quickly from my Coke background. It was very useful, actually, to understand sales ratios. Coca-Cola. Yeah, Coca-Cola. Yeah, not, not that. Not, not the narcotic. Not the sales background as well. Yeah, it would be. It would be. Yeah, no, we were, yeah, it was a little bit more boring than that. So, um, so yeah, no, so that was it. And I just cracked through it then. And, um, Did you focus you on a particular area? Or was yeah, it? Canary Wharf. It was, it was so our our Wharf. bunker was in Canary Wharf and Marsh Wall. And we sort of didn't go far from there for the first probably 60, 90 days. Mm. Do you remember what your first pitch was to investors or to index? Like, what what was that like? What were you really saying? And if you hadn't done the whole angel route and all that stuff, were you just how how that will feel? Was it terrifying? Was it? Were you really confident? No, we were we were we didn't have a bloody clue. We'd never seen a VC in our life. I didn't I didn't even know what a VC was until we sort of started speaking to them probably in two thousand and eight. You know, we Jesper was um, and I were very naive. Um, but in a way, that was a good thing. Naivety can be a good thing, right? Because we sort of went in there 
believed in passion in what we were doing, felt we had a real mission, felt that we were really helping these small businesses, felt that there was a global business to scale, didn't see any reason why it couldn't be us. So by then, I think we sort of had this sort of passionate conviction about the product and what we were trying to build and the company. We knew where our culture was because it was us. And we really felt that we sort of started to be able to replicate that with good hiring, um, hiring on culture rather than maybe experience or skills. We hired on culture and if we thought they were a good fit for our company. So we had some strong, I think, attributes going into a VC funding process, if you like. And then we really liked Danny Reimer at Index. And we really sort of culturally really liked Danny. And then we met Ben Holmes and we really liked Ben. So there was sort of a, you know, the culture felt good. And they, to be fair to Danny in particular, he really saw, like a lot of VCs, we got, I think we got thrown out of, or got told no by at least 50 VCs. It was the suit, wasn't it? It was the suit again. It was that. Well, this time it was the polo shirt. It was the polo shirt. Yeah, no, it was the pizza stains. Um, So I think we went to 120 presentations. We did a lot of VC work. Um, It was really unproductive and painful. But to be fair to them, they saw, and the big reason why we got thrown out was the reason I gave you, actually. People said, is this scalable local takeaway restaurants? Really? Because I think people bring their personal bias to funding process, even sophisticated VCs. And it's the biggest mistake I see, actually, in the venture world, is they bring that personal bias to when they're trying to... judge objectively someone's business i was in a vc meeting recently and they were talking about shopping in the consumer space and they were telling me all these um opinions of how people use their phone how they shop etc etc and i was like i'm really sorry to stop you there but what you've just said is true for men <laughs> and the majority of our audience are female and actually if you ask women they'll tell you the exact opposite and he was like Oh, that's a fairly good point. I was like, astounded. Yeah. So how could you not realise you're just giving a really obvious male bias to how a man shops on a product? And these are sophisticated, bright people, right? Yeah, very, very So we had a lot of that. And so we had a lot of, look, takeaway, don't really get this. You know, local takeaways, doesn't feel like a big business, doesn't feel like it can scale. Um, who, who, you know, do people really buy that much at local takeaways? Because, of course, if you live in Chelsea and Fulham, and uh, you have a different view of the world, I guess. So, but luckily, you know, the index guys and Danny in particular saw through that and were big advocates of us, and they could see we were very operationally driven, and um, and their money really helped us to scale. But I just wish we did it a year earlier. Being on the other side of the table now, you, is this something you purposefully? Um, have to make sure you don't do is go in with a bias yeah i do and i I actually tell colleagues all the time and i you know i I, yeah i just think it's the most i just think i get really frustrated with it i I did as a ceo you know if you if you 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 have to leave your personal biases at the door right and judge things on their merits and on individuals you're, you're speaking to and what they're presenting to you what you might feel is irrelevant right it's completely it's like it's like me not liking eddie jones I can still respect him because he's bloody brilliant at what he does, and he's look at the results. Look what he's look what he's building. That's how I judge it. And therefore, would you invest and back him 100% every day of the week? You should. Doesn't mean to say, but what you must do is leave that bias at the door. And actually, I'm, I'm I see a lot even today, even in the world. People read, watch TED talks, and see about read, learn all the time about personal bias. People still bring it to the party all the time, and it's very, very uh, restrictive and wrong, stupid. <laughs> so. Your first VC round with Index, how much did you raise? And actually, can you even remember how much you've raised through various rounds until you hit your IPO? Yeah, so we so we raised seven million with Index in our Series A, and then in our Series B, uh, we raised fifteen, of which that was that was in two thousand and eleven. That was with Greylock uh, and Redpoint uh, in the West Coast, 
and um, and then we did a Series C, which was completely unnecessary with private equity. Um, and I say unnecessary because we never used the capital uh, because the company became profitable. Um, so we raised a thirty-five million with Vitruvian, a private equity company, in our Series C in late twenty twelve, on the autumn of twenty twelve. But that, like I say, we never used that money. Um, in effect, it just what sat happens in, the bank. in that circumstance if you don't sit, use the money? Sits in your bank, and they got a bloody great deal. So that they basically invested. Yeah, we diluted ourselves unnecessarily as entrepreneurs, and they were good. They were good around the board. To be fair to them, they were good around the board, but we never needed the capital, so it was a, I guess, a naive round in that sense. Were you profitable when you set the money? No, we were fast approaching it, but it probably goes back again to our approach. You know, if you go back to yeah, us, we yeah, were too right, yeah. conservative, and we were a little bit cautious, and we were always a little bit. So I think you know, for us, we were probably not the best template to follow from, from how to raise money because we did it too late in our Series A. Then we raised unnecessary money in our Series C. But I guess you learn as you go. So I would say... But having said that, it's a fine line and being yeah, is, and being uh, overly sensitive and overly cautious yeah, is much better than being wrong it is. and arrogant and that's about true. making your targets, which very rarely people do. That just shows good leadership. Yeah, maybe. Um, how many employees did you actually have um, when you left Justy, just out of interest? 2,130. So with 2,130 employees from two guys in a basement, mm-hmm. you have a big effort on scaling culture. Yeah. And I've seen you do a talk before where you talked about your annual events, those big, justy annual events where you bring people around the world. Do you want yeah. to share some of that with our listeners and explain how you viewed culture and scaling culture over that time? Yeah, I like to think, I, I, you know, I think all good leaders are militant about things they really think matter for their company. And one of the things we were militant about was our culture. And so when we became, one of the things we did every year, we started, we called it the world party and this you know the reason why i say that sort of world thing with a sense of irony is the first time it was in regent's park in 2006 there were eight of us with a picnic from m&s it wasn't really a world party but it probably tells you some of our ambition because we even called that the world party there's like two colleagues from denmark and six from the uk in a park in north london so and that was the world party and then so it, it stayed called the world party m&s but, though that explains where your 36 yeah, pound went look at that m&s yeah, exactly. proper, that's proper sausage rolls so we um so then we did that every year so we involved in the centre parks uh, which then evolved into um, an entire hotel in Windsor and we flew every employee from around the world and by the end we had employees in Australia Brazil Canada Mexico obviously most of Western Europe and so we would fly them all in um, two days first day would be sort of a professional agenda we would do like a conferencey style thing but it was kind of fun and energy all together we we had the biggest indoor marquee in the UK in my last year CEO it it went to Glastonbury and came from Glastonbury to Just Eat that's That's brilliant that's proper why do you need an indoor marquee because you get just in case it rains and indoors because, and because we could all right yeah, yeah. fair enough and then um and, and then um and then the second day was sort of cultural so we would do like interactive team stuff together have the big party in the evening have a concert spend time together some drinks have a barbecue have all we, and what was the great one of my favorite bits of it was from every country we operated in there was like a wigwam and everyone had the food from their local country so you had brazilian food in the brazilian town cool. etc etc and you got to eat food from all the different teams and the and the and the local teams the just eat teams would have to make the food and and then serve it and it was just a brilliant thing it was just a great thing and i think that was kind of the cherry on the cake of our culture but i think the most important thing we did was that we spent we created a very flat organization in terms of 
you know, there wasn't a big string hierarchy. Going back to your point about Eric and the guy sat in his office, you know, I shared an office, you know, anyone could be in my office. I didn't care. I didn't get pressures about stuff like that. And I think being open with your employees, we shared information widely, even as a public company, we didn't get too neurotic about that to the point that our board would would always be like, oh my God, have you really told everybody that? Because we're like, well, actually, they matter more, you know, they matter a lot. There are people who work for us. There are colleagues. Um, So if I can't trust them, who can I trust? Who can't I trust something? So I think those sort of things on our culture, I think we got very right. And actually, that's my biggest, when I was leaving a year ago, when I left the CEO role, the, the, the biggest thing I sort of said, and I really think about today is I really hope as the company goes on its journey now that it keeps the best of the culture of course all companies evolve I just hope it keeps that culture because I was um, that's probably as a a sort of an entrepreneur that's the thing I think was if I said what's the biggest most important thing we got right that was the thing we got right and it's very easy not to value it Mm. but once it's gone you've lost it forever I do agree one of our generous sponsors enabling us to put together season two is a company called Contour, which is Contour.Space, which is a newer player in the office uh, space game, really. Help startups from um, a team of two people in a basement all the way up to, you know, 2,000 people in a skyscraper building. Um, I guess what I want to know is um, when they weren't around and other players like them weren't around, how did you manage scaling from two people to, what did you say, 2,000? 100 and something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, what was that like? Yeah, no, the, it's, the logistics of it are tough. So we are, but we are very lucky. We had a great CFO, uh, a guy called Mike Rowe, and Mike was absolutely brilliant. Um, at, he, he, he come from running an airport. I think he's done a job. He worked for BAA or someone like that, and he'd run Heathrow Airport at one point in his career before we joined Just Eat. And it just was brilliant because he just knew how to, you know, run the office environment, scaling it, logistics around that stuff. Mike was just great. So I used to let Mike just say, tell Mike what we wanted, and then Mike would just crack on with it. I guess 2,000 people is nothing if you've uh, tried to operate in Heathrow, so fair enough. Um, How would you describe your leadership style? And has it changed through the years? Has it had to? Yeah, it it definitely it definitely has to change. I think when I when I started, I was extremely hands on in the business from an operational perspective and very much in every detail. Um, and I think that's important actually, and th- certainly through Series A and then into Series B. And obviously, as a startup, that was it was it was a necessity. It wasn't a, a strategic decision. Um, I just had to. So I think you do have to be able to, as a leader, how I changed was understanding that in order for this thing to scale. You cannot be a top-down leader, you know, sat in London, certainly with our business model, which is a local business in every market we operated in. You need to empower people and understand that actually it's them that need to be the entrepreneurs in the market that they operate in within your organization. And you can only create that really by trust, sharing information, yes, calibrating and checking in on how they're doing against, you know, agreed measures or whatever, but really empowering them to run their countries. And if you went to Just Eat Spain, for example, I always prided it on the fact that when I went there, it felt like Just Eat in the UK did in 2008 and nine. which what that told me was we really trusted them with the model, if you like, or our company, and they built it and it was all credit to them. It was nothing to do with us sat in London. All we did was hopefully get some hiring right around the cultural hiring for our Spanish team. But it very much felt like, you know, a startup, even though it was basically well-funded from a very well-funded company. Did they get siestas? Did they get siestas? I think... 
No, they didn't actually. I don't know if that's changed a little bit in Spain now. Though. Yeah, yeah. I don't think our Spanish team ever really did that. They were, I was quite surprised about it. the Italian team were a little bit more sort of classic Italian culture, but the Spanish team were very sort of Western European. Unfortunately, maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. Um, you know, you just mentioned uh, you just touched on this yourself actually, but talk to us about hiring. How do you find those kind of people? Do you think this is something that you've always had? a great skill out is that one of your core strengths finding those types of people or is it did you devolve that to someone else you know was that someone else's strength from the early days no I think when I was good I was good at surrounding myself with people I think that had complementary skills I think I understood well that in order to build an organization and scale it you need very different people than yourself so hiring lots of people again bringing personal bias to the table and hiring people that you like to spend time with is not, I think, a good global scalable business leader model. I think you need to bring people that actually you understand. So I think I had a good instinct at Just Eat of what we needed next. For example, Mike Rowe, our CFO, run an airport, knew that we were going to have, have to build global offices, knew we would have to build global logistics. So having Mike hired and brought in, that was probably a good example of understanding what was required. I think other, you know, and that, that was credit actually to some other guys as well. Um, and then I think the other thing I got right was, was also understanding that when it was time to move people on, because it does come a time when you have to do that. And I think I had a good feel for, actually, you know, we need something different now. The business has got to a point where it's outgrown an individual. They're the tough conversations as well, but you've got to be willing to have them. Um, I never enjoyed doing them, but, you know, there were times when I had to do that. And I, and I think being able to do that, there was an important facet of enabling your company to then grow again and, and keep pushing forward. And what about competition? I mean, you haven't been the only people in the space, but you've I mean, you know, obviously beat off a lot of the competition along the way. And sure. I guess the way to describe it is eating them up. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So how do you view competition? How how did you look at it from the start? Did you spend a lot of time analysing your competitors or did you just put your head down and crack on? I think, I don't want to make this sound like a contradiction, a contradiction but I, I was always massively competitive, um, even as a child. So I definitely wanted, when we started building Just Eat, I wanted this to be the biggest, most successful, you know, beat our competitors, all those sort of like, I guess, kind of bit cliched um, sort of business terms you could apply to most things in life. But I definitely wanted to win whatever that meant. I didn't want to be an also-ran player. I wanted to absolutely slam all our competitors and be the best player we could be and biggest player we could be. Um but at the same time, actually, this does sound like a contradiction. At the same time, I definitely had a healthy respect because I could see that there were companies I looked at within our space. I thought, wow, they're doing a good job because we were in the first mover, right? We were the third mover in the UK. Mm. So lastminute.com started, had Urban Bite, uh, which at last minute at the time was quite a big company in the UK in the dot-com era. So yeah. they, they had Urban Bite, which started before us. And then Hungry House started about six or eight weeks before us and went on Dragon's Den, some yeah. people might remember. Yeah, remember. So the, the, we weren't the first mover. I think what we were, though, was the best executed scale. Um, but And that was partly driven by this culture, I think, of of wanting to win and be the biggest, but also, I think, driven by the fact we were operationally the best company in the sector. Can you give us some insight about um, the journey? I mean, obviously... You hear about Just Eat now, and it was the first tech company in the UK to IPO. Is there some kind of chat about that? There was we might be a on bit, a technicality. Not, but... well, I don't know. Yeah, we were definitely the biggest tech IPO in the UK for a decade mm. or so. I think. Yeah, I think that's true. So I mean, people hear that story, and then they're just like, "Well, you know, there's that you know rocket ship from start to straight line or hockey stick even upwards." But obviously, <laughs> it's not quite the, uh, no, the facts. I... So, what are some of the toughest blips along the way that you can share with us? Yeah, no, I think I always laugh when I hear that because it's, it's well, we kept getting called a startup into like the Daily Mail, and it used to just make me want to pull my 
you know, lasting my hair out because like it's so disrespectful journalism because like we'd, we'd spent over 10 years of our life, blood, sweat and tears building it, yeah. nearly gone bust twice and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, this overnight success, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, thanks for that. Brilliant. What, what, what just actually then, let's, let's focus on that. What does almost go bust mean to you? Describe well, those we, moments. We, uh, it was, well, I remember it well, it was August 2006 and Jesper had some problems and wanted to go back to Denmark and, um, and uh, we, we were running on fumes basically financially Um and then, uh, luckily, this angel I mentioned uh, came through for us um, and helped us out. But we were literally, I mean, Jesper said, let's close up. I mean, he actually said, let's just pack it in. Um, I mean, you know, the next day he came back in and said, no, no, we're not going to pack it in. We're going to conquer the world again. But, you know, there was definitely 24 hours where I went home and thought, oh, Jesper's really in a bad place here. Um so there was that, and people often forget that. There was actually the first month. I remember going home to my partner and saying, who's now my wife, and saying, you know, we, we've just, our turnover's 36 pounds, and it's, that's, by the way, that's between two of us. Uh, you know, it, it's, it was a bit of a reality. It was, I didn't feel good about it. I thought, oh my God, you know, I've got just, I think I'd just taken on a small mortgage, and it was like, oh my God, that's quite terrifying. <laughs> what have I done? Perhaps my dad was right, and I'm a moron. Um, so that, there was moments like that. And then, of course, the, some te- the, the technology challenges we had in some scale were just horrendous so we you know numerous times hit platform issues around scale um but that's again where index actually came in helpful because what they did they actually part of their are their funding they introduced a really good cto and he helped us to build a stable platform to then go on and scale which was probably one of the most liberating carlos magado one of the most liberating things that happened to us because carlos really put a stable platform in place he used to talk about the three s's stability security he's going to kill me stability security spanish Spanish. No, no, what was it? Stability security. I can't remember anyway. Okay. So it's Carlos Lafter right in with the third S. But there was, um, he used to keep, for back in 2008 and nine. he kept saying about these three S's. And, um, um, and so, takeaway. Yes, maybe it was that. Maybe it was that. So, um, so yeah, and that, that really helped us to scale our organization because we, you know, in the end, we ended up working with, what was it, 70,000 restaurants around the world. So mm. you, we definitely needed stability. Um, you IPO'd for £1.5 billion, correct? Something like that. The price on the London Something Stock like Exchange. Is that the best moment of your life? Definitely not. Interesting. Definitely not. No, I, I, I was quite. Um, it's an emphatic no, though. Definitely not. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I felt. Um, I don't know. It, look, it was, it was a nice moment, but I, um, I think more exciting for us, honestly, was a Series A. I, I know that sounds odd, but um, just because like we'd been bootstrapped for so long, and to get validation from an external it's person who's willing to give us money, it was like, oh my god, this is amazing. We, you know, we, you know, we're not idiots. <laughs> Big out. Series A as well for London. It was for us at the time, right? Yeah. It was a huge deal, and we really felt we we're going to conquer the world with all that. We thought this is, you know, six or seven million pounds to us was like we were like, oh my god, you know, we're gonna we're gonna like we can buy the world with six or seven. What million was pounds. your plan? Just going back to that, what was your plan with the six or seven million pounds? Was it to grow the UK? So expand internationally, Western Europe. Uh, I can remember. I can remember the deck. So expanding into Western Europe to go on try a national trial a national television uh, advertising campaign for the first time and to scale our sales organisation to every corner of the UK. That was the three pillars of our our funding round. Uh, I remember it well. And so that was yeah. The IPO for me was a little bit of a. It was great for the company. It was great for our shareholders. Um, it was nice for my mum. But honestly, I had kind of a reverence to it. I was a bit you know I probably bored of spending time with bankers and. You know, I thought, you know, th- this is not what... I didn't know what an IPO was when I started Just Eat. I'm happy to admit it. I had no idea. If someone said IPO, I'd have gone, I don't know, what is that? Is that some international NGO or something? Um, you know, I don't. I, I didn't know. So for me, an IPO was, was, was great for the company, was great for our shareholders, but I just wanted to keep the company with the same two things, which is have the same culture and have the same level of global ambition. Because I see, you know, 
It's good now, actually. I think I see a lot of UK companies with global ambition, but we were probably the first to have, be really genuinely. I mean, Rightmove were before us, and they never really left the UK. I don't think. So, you know, we, we were really globally ambitious and we wanted to keep our culture. And it was those two things when we IPO'd was, were in the top of my mind. I remember the morning of the IPO thinking, I just want to make sure this culture doesn't change and our ambition levels don't change. And we don't start just managing investors for mm. profits. And what did it feel like running a public company after that? It was good. I, I, I never changed. I mean, if you ask our shareholders and our, uh, more importantly, if you asked our internal team if I changed, I think they would tell you unequivocally no. I think I was the same person... When we were a private company, and I was the same person with a public company, um, so I think I had a healthy irreverence to it. Although I did actually have to confess, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed the roadshows, and I heard a lot of CEOs complain to me about how much time they'd spend with on roadshows doing events. I, I, that was good. I really enjoyed it. It was only like there's a London listed company you only do two a year anyway, and they're like I think about seven days to ten days. I met some really smart people. <laughs> there's some of the investors I met, especially um, especially there was a couple of guys at Wellington in the US and BlackRock and Fidelity and a guy up in Boston uh, that I really, really enjoyed interacting with and really like exchanging ideas around the strategy and what was going well and what wasn't. So I really enjoyed the roadshows. I sort of tried to treat them as a bit of a sort of, you know, get something back from the investors and say, what do you think? And try and get some out of them. So I, I never found that. So I quite enjoyed it. And then after 11 years, you basically stepped down and you took some time out and then you've moved into a venture capital role, correct? Yeah. So I stepped down a year ago now. In a couple of weeks time, it's a year, which has gone really fast. Um, and then obviously our Series B investor, Greylock, uh, morphed into 83 North in Europe about four years ago. So they offered me a part-time role as a general partner initially. So I um, thought that sounds really interesting. So um, obviously I'm doing that now. Um, but yeah, no, it took some time as well. It took about four or five months in the end off, which is nice. Um, and um, yeah, it was just, you know, after 11 years, it's just other things you want to do with your life. There was just nothing. Any, I just knew inside me when it was right time. And, I, you know, in some ways I think... Could I have done another year or two? Maybe, maybe not. But actually, for me and the family, it was just the right time. Mm. And you just have to know um, know that in yourself and then be disciplined enough not to stay for too long. Coming back to your own um, grandpa's advice that you can be anything you want to be. Yeah. And now you're a VC. Yeah. How do you, How does that play into your perspective do you think that's something you'll do for a long time or do you have an itch you need to scratch to do something else no i don't actually i really enjoy spending time with entrepreneurs and the best thing about being a vc in my opinion obviously is 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 that you get to spend time with really brilliant smart entrepreneurs and that's i guess lots of vcs say that but i actually really really mean it i love that part of the job i really really enjoy i probably do too many meetings as a result I'm probably not disciplined enough in my time. I probably need to get better at that because um, I really enjoy meeting the uh, the entrepreneurs. Um, but no, that that no, I really enjoy it actually. Uh, I think the challenge is, you know, really in this moment in time is just making sure you, I think, don't bring your personal biases, and secondly, really try and identify the special entrepreneurs because it, it, that's not easy actually. Um, but hopefully, I'll get okay at it. So what industries are fascinating you at the moment, you know, using buzzword bingo? Is it things like uh, AI and blockchain or? No, less so, actually. I'm kind of a bit more contrary, I guess. I I quite like uh, old-fashioned businesses. So I quite like um, the SaaS business model stuff, which I guess is quite conservative these days. I also like, uh, but I see some good stuff, especially coming out of Germany still um, and Scandinavia 
and with our business model, I, I guess if there's a bit of buzzword in me, I guess there would be robotics. I really, I guess from being a child of the 80s. Um, but no, I really think robotics is interesting from at an industrial application level because I do think about many tasks, including delivery, for example, which human beings really are not a very efficient use of human resource um, and not very good for the environment either. So so I think there's there's... If, was, if there was one buzzword being going about about industries, I think robotics would be one I'm genuinely interested in. Um, and spent, I've spent a lot of time looking at various companies in that sector. And then probably the third one is, is obviously e-commerce marketplaces, given my background. Yeah, that's very fair. This final part is uh, more around the balance that's required in a successful career of a person of your esteemed stature. Um, so it's very generously sponsored by Calm.com, the meditation app and Apple's 2017 app of the year. So I guess the first question is, do you meditate and have you ever been tempted to? Is that any part of your routine or journey? Yeah, so I have actually. I have. And I think, I, I guess meditation takes many forms, but I like to uh, uh, take my dogs for a nice big walk on the weekend. So my, my form of meditation is probably once or twice a week. Um, I take the dogs for about an hour um, up the riverbank and that sort of bit of quiet time, thinking time. And it definitely, in my mind, it qualifies as meditation because I feel like I'm meditating. So it must be true. Completely I'm not sure I'm doing it very well, but I'm, I'm oh, definitely, I, I I'm, I'm in a world of my own a little bit. I have this conversation with pet owners all the time. I think pets are completely meditative. I think it counts. Oh, another podcast, I guess, Pete Smith was exactly the same. He he meditated by taking his dog for a walk. Yeah, okay, so, there you go. Then. So yeah, not, exactly not, not, yeah, no, not no, an outlier. I don't think people need to think about meditation as just sitting totally. down. Totally. Uh, I mean, I on think a yoga mat. Yeah, I think of meditation as like stroking my cats because they purr, and I don't think about anything for yeah. like ten or twenty minutes, and I'm like, that's meditation, surely. Absolutely. Um, have you actually struggled uh, during your journey with anything like depression, mental health issues? I mean, it's a really intense journey you've gone through, and they, you know, they do say it's lonely at the top. I suffered with stress a bit. I definitely no. So no to dep- no, no, absolutely not to those things. And so no, I didn't actually um, to those things. If, if there was one thing I did, I definitely felt the pressure and stress of having to deliver first for VC. Well, actually, first for us as a team to survive and bootstrap. Then as to the VCs, I definitely felt I owed it. You know, they give us all this money. I thought, my God, we better you know we better pay them back. Um, so I definitely felt that pressure. I, that, that, there was times actually that I wore that burden a bit heavy. Um, but no, not not really. I always sort of think, well, I always I always had a bit of a, a life of Brian approach to things. You know, you sort of start with nothing, you end with nothing. What have you lost? Nothing. So I, you know, in that sense, I kind of think from a personal level, I never, you know, I, I know I can live with very little financial means and be very happy. Actually, probably the happy times of my life were when financially I was probably really really constrained, and actually they were brilliant times. So. I don't worry about stuff like that because I know I can always survive because I have. And what kind of support have you had along the way? So have you had mentors? Have you had really great advisors? Has there been that kind of structure in place? Maybe it was just, you know, you mentioned your grandpa, but beyond that kind of multiplier within your own family, have people been there on the journey for you that really stand out? Doesn't seem like it from your facial expressions. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I, look, I don't want to underplay the credit a family have taken because, you know, they've always been actively interested and obviously various have really encouraged me. But I would say more for me, it was the friendships internally at Just Eat that got us through it. Like the pals I was building Just Eat with, so like guys like Matt Brady, our CMO, Mike Rowe, our CFO. Um, oh, we know Matt, we're friends with him, actually. Yeah, so yeah, if, you know, if you know Brad, Brady, he's, yeah. a, he's a brilliant guy to build a company with. Mm. Um, so Matt Brady, Mike Rowe, Carlos McGuddard, name check him. We were like 
we definitely felt like a group of buddies in a basement building a company in Jesper, obviously. You definitely, we definitely felt like that. And I think they were probably the ones that we got each other through because we could see when each other's low. And I think good entrepreneurs help each other like that. You say, actually, Jesper's looked a bit down because he was always a bit up there and then down there. He was like one of those guys. So you could see, oh, time to lift Jesper up. So I'm going to have a word with him. But, um, but no, so not really. It was Mike probably I went to the most, our CFO. I would go to Mike and have a moan, you know, and say, oh, Mike, I'm really fed up, you know, da 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 with So, yeah, I think that was more the internal friendships that got me through it. What's the biggest mistake you think you've ever made at Justy in your journey? Your personal single biggest oh, mistake, and what did you do to rectify it? Oh God, so many. Um, well, take us through the list, maybe. Yeah, we'd be here a while. We'd be here a while. I think. I think the probably the biggest mistake I, I made um, was two acquisitions I could have done and should have done. And I'm, well, I'm happy to say, so we should have bought Hungry House much earlier in the UK. I think that was our my personal, I guess drive to win inverted commas and beat our competitors clouded my judgment around being strategically thinking about M&A so maybe we should have used that CBC money that we raised with from Vitruvian and we should have acquired them because we could have acquired them much cheaper probably and, that, and we could have accelerated like anyway so didn't do that that was my fault I'm, I'm an idiot um, I guess clouded my judgment there um, on that one and then I think probably the second one was also a piece of M&A um, we probably should have bought one of our European competitors back in was it just just before IPO actually I won't take all the blame for that one because the guy on the other side of the table had a bloody big ego and that made it difficult what was the name of that company I won't mention that company oh you can't okay but but, but, you know there's not that many European companies but he had a big ego and it just got in the way and and I probably didn't push it hard enough as it uh, that I could have done at the time what's been the toughest thing you've had to do in your professional life toughest thing i think for me that's simple i think the hardest thing i ever did at just eat was letting people go because they they were friends and colleagues for a period of time and then you could just see there was once or twice there wasn't that often actually probably four or five times over the course of 11 years i had to do it so once every other year almost that you know someone who i'd been working with helped build a company you could see they just were no longer the right person to stay on the journey and having that conversation with someone that i genuinely did care about um was really hard i found those conversations the hardest conversations actually but I knew that I would do them because I knew they're the right thing to do. And you sort of have that conviction because it's the right thing to do. But it was didn't it didn't make them easy. So that was the hardest thing. Let's flip the let's flip it a little bit. So what's the proudest moment of your journey? Okay, so the proudest moment of the journey for sure for me is when I look around how many people and entrepreneurs Just Eat's created now. If you know, if I look around the London scene, I meet you know many of the guys come present to me now. Actually, um, we definitely I think helped helped a little bit to drive some of the um, ecosystem. Certainly in the food sector, and we started a food accelerator about two years ago at Just Eat, which drive other food entrepreneurs into starting up for food tech companies. Um, so I'm definitely proud of that because you know there was none of that when we were around when we started, and I think it would have been helpful if it had been around. Uh, I think probably the second thing, um, the second thing I'm probably most proud of is the fact that, you know, our culture, I think was was a bit was a, there was something a little bit special about mm-hmm. it. Uh, there really was, and I think those that were in the company would know what I'm talking about. And to me, they're the ones that matter. What's the best piece of advice you've been given? Um, probably the best piece of advice I was given actually by by our uh, our, our old chairman John Hughes who really did give us, I think, the maturity and confidence to not only just go public, but when we went public, 
to be not be defined by our U.S. competitor, who was also a public company. They went the IPO one day after us. Mm. Uh, we did that deliberately, yeah. um, obviously, of course, because the, the, their CEO really wanted to IP- yeah, no, he wanted their CEO was really mad on IPO and be the first company in the sector, and we just didn't care. We thought, well, I'll just do it whenever we want to do it. But with the more we found out that their CEO wanted to be the first one, we thought, screw it, let's do it one day before him. So we did, childish but amusing. That was one of Matt Brady's, I think. Um, oh, good. So uh, that was quite funny. So yeah, no, so that was probably him giving us that. Um, belief, I think, not only just to take it public, but then say you can be the global winner in the space, I think was a really important, um, I guess, ambition uh, confirmer. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish, whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish, and our service is completely free. Check us out on contour.space. What would you say to your 15-year-old self, so the... Uh, guy driving around on a bicycle delivering newspaper rounds. Yeah, I would say, don't worry, it's going to be all right, you know, because I think at the time in my teens, I thought, oh my God, am I ever going to get out of Wales? Will I ever be able to get a decent job? Mm. And I was more worried about that, really. So I, I would probably just be reassuring and say, you know, it's going to be all right. And, and, and you know, and, and, your, and your gut feeling that, you know, you can probably... Um, start a business is true because I wanted to start my own business I remember going to a careers teacher in school said I want to start my own business and the careers teacher said to me this is no it's unbelievable the careers teacher actually said to me but you've gone you know you don't have the means to start a company why do something more realistic like be a fireman Nice. So nothing wrong with being a fireman, no, by the no, way. No. Firemen are very important people, and I would have been maybe I would have been a good fireman. I don't know, but that's not really the point, is it? Someone actually said that to me. You know, well, you haven't got the means, you know. So how are you going to do? The... <laughs> anyway, if I look back on that now and think about God, I hope those careers teachers have changed mm. because you know it's nothing worse than giving being given bad advice when you're young and impressionable, right? It's yeah. different now. If someone said that to me, I'd say, "Don't be such a moron." Very moron. When you're 15, right? Mm. You're a bit more. You're a bit more. Totally impact, agree. Has an impact, right? We're coming on to the right, the last question now. You'll be delighted to hear. So, wrapping up now, David, sure. what's the most exciting innovation in the world to you right now? So, not necessarily something that you can specifically do at 83 North, but you know, if you could invest in anything in the world, what do you think is the most future? Exciting. I would have to say something around health, actually. So I think the stuff around cancer research that's going on right now, I think, is you know, family members have been impacted by that. So I would say, I would say, the stuff around health and some of the stuff that the Bill Gates Foundation is doing, I think, is just inspirational. I think you know that that stuff really does matter because it's people. So that's probably the stuff I take the most inspiration from. And, and what it shows is what's possible when human beings really channel their energy and some smart people turn their minds to fixing some real problems that actually really matter. So that's probably the biggest thing I take inspiration from. The last guest we interviewed was actually the founder of Babylon Health. And the oh, stuff wow. that they're doing is just absolutely amazing. Really ambitious guy. Fantastic. And finally, what does the future of takeaway look like? Yeah, I think probably these two things. Firstly, it's going to be continually more diverse. So takeaway, I think, is starting to no longer mean Chinese kebab and pizzas, right, and curries. It's it's going to mean pretty much everything you eat for dinner, whether it be, you know, a, whatever it be, a salad or a sushi, whatever it be. It's going to just be, I, I think takeaway is going to become, maybe the word almost has to change because of the connotation back to being just fast food because actually people are just taking away food now and having it for their dinners. Uh, we had the first, when I was at Just Eat as CEO, the first restaurants in Canada, in Toronto, flats being built without kitchens. 
So mm. people just ate out every night of the week or ordered in. So I think that's it's going to continue to become a product that everyone uses day to day to live. Um, I think probably the second thing is that you'll see more technology come into it to make the delivery of all different types of food possible. And that is where, for example, robotics potentially comes in. Because I, I don't see a world in 10 years' time where human beings can be running around on zero-hours contracts delivering food. It just doesn't necessarily feel the right way to be doing it when technology, I think, could make it much smarter. I mean, maybe there's some complication around that, but I think that's for certainly a, at least a good percentage of food delivery orders will happen through robotics. With technology so much at the heart of Just Eat's story, do you think that that physical product side could be something that you look at in the future as a company? I don't think so. I just, I, I just don't think so. I think our job was to support the guys who are making the food and to do more for them, to help them do it smarter, better, less waste, more efficiently, use technology to run their kitchens better. But I think I think that's where we should stop and start. But I mean, there's a, there's a new CEO now. He might think, you know, I'm a moron and they should, you know, be making kebabs. Who knows? Well, moron or not, you've built an awesome company. So <laughs> thank you very much for your time today. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. There is a plan in place that will make the world better, significantly better for everybody on it. So I would encourage everybody around the world to look up that plan, look up globalgoals.org, spend some time with the goals, have a real think about what it is you could do to, to make a difference. Never believe you can't make a difference because everybody can make some sort of positive impact on the people in the world around them and love each other just a little bit more. That was Gail Galley, co-founder of Project Everyone, whose mission is to promote the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. She co-founded the company with Kate Garvey, whose husband is Wikipedia founder Jimmy Wales, and Richard Curtis, the infamous British movie writer and director and founder of Red Nose Day. The three of them make up the brain's beauty and brawn behind one of the toughest missions around to drive awareness and adoption of some of the biggest challenges facing our planet today. If you're interested in sustainable development, climate change, poverty and any of these major global topics, next week's founder will be sure to surprise, entertain, delight and definitely inspire. See you then. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media. And if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.